Thank you, Steve, and thank you, everybody. It's great to be back at King's. I always enjoy being here, long association with you, and uh, it always blesses me to hear news of you, favor of God upon you, people being saved and added, and a great church being built for the glory of God. So thanks for the invitation. It's a joy to speak on this theme. Yes, it's, uh, for me, been life-changing. I think as a pastor, uh, working hard, yeah, had been filled with the Spirit, seeing other people filled with the Spirit, a church that was growing, but so often feeling that kind of cloud of, am I absolutely accepted? Am I doing enough, Lord? Uh, am, I, am I serving adequately? Is everything okay? And so I could be worshipping, I could be serving, I could be, yes, working hard, but always that kind of slight cloud, hoping that everything was okay. And that I know I'm saved, I'm not going to heaven, but it's all, it's all well. And for me, when I saw the grace of God, as it comes clearly through Scripture when we look closely, all those clouds of uncertainty evaporated and a sense of acceptance and delight and joy replaced all of that. And uh, it's been life-changing for me. And so I'm not preaching just a Bible truth, though I love to do that, but something that's very dear to me as a life-changing truth and one that's lasted. It's not just a kind of flash-in-the-pan excitement, but something that keeps me, uh, yes, day in, day out, year in, year out, decade in and decade out as we press on with God. So I'm so pleased, and I do uh, pray that I can be a blessing to you tonight. Uh, it's a theme that's right through our New Testament, but I'm going to pick it up in one particular place. Uh, in Romans, I'm going to read one verse with you, Romans 5 and verse 17. If we were to look at the whole of Romans, you'll find it's a kind of continual argument. He's building a case as he goes through his epistle, and it's quite difficult to interrupt him. Uh, in chapter 5, particularly, Paul is comparing and contrasting the devastation that came through Adam's sin, that when Adam sinned, he ruined the human race, this wonderful creation of God. God made man in his image, his likeness. He's there to glorify God, and he's good, the Bible says. Then he yielded to temptation and wrecked and, and the whole human race was spoiled. When he, ha when he did it, he was the human race. It affected the whole of us. From then on, uh, every person born, we, we, we read, is a child of disobedience. It's wrapped up in our nature. It doesn't matter if you're the child of a pastor. Actually, your human nature is one, yeah, a child of disobedience. It's kind of written into our DNA that we disobey, that we choose not to please God. And Adam did that. But then in Romans and chapter 5, it speaks of what Jesus came to accomplish. A second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came, as an old hymn says it. Jesus came to bring forth a new human race, a race in Christ. And so throughout chapter 5, you get these comparisons. I'm just going to read one of the verses, otherwise will take a long time. Okay, so in Romans 5 and verse 17, Paul says this, If by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, many, sorry, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness shall reign in life 
through the one Jesus Christ. This one brought devastation. This one brought thorough, thorough reinstatement, joy, acceptance, and victory. Let's pray. Father, we ask you right now, in the name of Jesus, for the Holy Spirit to rest upon us. Come, Holy Spirit. We read that you kind of, Lord, you fluttered over creation. You, you were present. You brought it to birth. Lord, you can just hover over us, Lord. Bring faith and revelation to birth in our hearts in a life-changing way, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. We ask it, Father. I pray for lives to be changed by truth tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the verse I read to you has this very vivid phrase in it. It says, if we receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, we reign in life. That's a vivid phrase, isn't it? Reigning in life. It kind of communicates being on top of circumstances, not being under, we're reigning, we're, we're doing well, we reign in life. Now, that's not an isolated verse in the Bible. You'll find there are other uh, similar phrases. It says things like this, he always leads us in his triumph, always in triumph. It says elsewhere, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I mean, great to be a conqueror. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So these are very kind of extravagant phrases describing your life and mine, that we reign in life, we're more than conquerors, uh, we're always in triumph. Whoa, this is great. Uh, except we feel, hmm, if only. Uh, and so often you kind of hit a crisis when you think, I thought I'd do better than this. I wish I was doing better than this. And that's not a bad moment. It could be you're at a conference, maybe you've set aside time, you've attended a conference, and, and the Word of God's come to you, and it's been somewhat searching, and you feel, Lord, I'd like to do better than this. Or maybe it's the turn of the year. You look back over last year, and you think, Lord, that isn't what I had hoped for. I'm sorry about last year. And, you know, maybe you bought yourself a new diary, and you think, wow, all these clean pages, I haven't messed any up yet. Uh, Lord, this year, this year, I'm going to do better for you. And that's a good moment. It's great when you, you feel a fresh wave of motivation. That's always good for us. We, we feel, yes, Lord, something rises in our hearts. Now, the sad thing is this, that at that very moment sometimes, instead of reading the small print, what it actually says, we kind of think, well, I'm going to reign in life. I'm going to do better. What can I do to make that happen? And what we tend to do is to set ourselves certain rules to live by. If we mean business, we say things like, right, I'm going to get my alarm earlier in the mornings. I'm going to get longer time of prayer. I, I, I'm going to pray harder. Uh, yeah, and I'm going to get into my Bible more seriously. Uh, I'm going to get a reading program. Uh, well, let me think, how many thousand and 200 pages? That's about maybe seven pages a day. I'm going to read my whole Bible this year. And, and we kind of set some rules over ourselves, thinking, if I can keep the rules, I'll reign in life. That's the kind of mental progress, a process we tend to go through. If I could keep the rules, I'll make it. And Paul writes to the Galatians, actually his angriest letter, we'll get into that a bit more as we go on, and he says this, you, you, who will be justified by law, 
have fallen from grace. We who try to vindicate ourselves by keeping rules, we've missed the point. We've lost our way. We've fallen from grace. If you ever hear that phrase, it kind of in the, tends to be in the context of, have you seen Johnny late? No, he doesn't come anymore. Oh, maybe fallen from grace. We use the phrase like he's backslidden. That's not how Paul uses it. Paul uses that phrase, fallen from grace, when we've started to be legalistic, keeping rules, obeying command. If only we could just do these things. He said, no, you've fallen from grace. Now, why does he write this letter? He writes similar in Romans. He says, the sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, you're under grace. He begins to contrast law and grace. Now, the reason he writes this letter to the Galatians is this. Paul went to this place, Galatia. He preached the gospel. And the Bible makes clear a great church came to birth. Many were converted, filled with the Holy Spirit. We read in Galatians 3, signs, wonders, miracles, healings, Holy Spirit poured out. I mean, it's a great church. It's come to birth through gospel preaching, the Spirit poured out. Hey, a great church. And Paul, being an apostle, goes on now. Hey, God bless you. He goes on to start another church in another town. When he moves out, what the Bible calls the Judaizers move in behind him. Now, the Judaizers are probably Christians, but they're from Jewish extraction. Their roots are in Judaism. They have a Jewish background. And they come in behind Paul, and they see this church that's come to birth, and they say things like this, hey, it's great. You accepted our Messiah. Actually, our Old Testament prophets told us that the Gentiles would come in. Hey, this is great. You've come in. You've become part of this, this community. Uh, hey, this is excellent. Well done. We're pleased you're here. Um, but we've known him for years, centuries. We've known this God of the Bible. Uh, to be really accepted, to make sure you're okay, there's some things you need to do. Um, you must keep the Sabbath. Um, actually, you must be circumcised. And uh, you shouldn't eat that food. No, don't eat that. Don't, no, you don't eat that food. Uh, you do keep the feast days. And they just started saying, look, if you want to make sure all is really well, you just need to add this stuff. You need to add these other things just to make sure you're really safe. Now, sadly, the kind of modern equivalence of that it can be that you hear the gospel, uh, you know you're a pagan, like I used to be a real pagan, I didn't know anything about God, I didn't know really anything. And then I got led to Christ, and that can happen to you. Somebody tells you, you meet someone, you think, hey, what is it with her? She's kind of peaceful. I don't know, she seems together. And it's always about Jesus. Jesus. You come to church and you think, hey, they're all a bit like it. I better try and clean up my act. You find you can't clean up your act. Gosh, I'm a mess. And then one day you hear the gospel. You really hear it. Just as I am, I can come. I just come, I believe. And that in a moment it can happen, like it did to me. In a moment you suddenly know, I'm accepted, I'm saved. You're born again. Wow, I've never heard the phrase the night I got saved. I've never heard it before. You're born again. Wow, this is wonderful. What can then happen? Is that someone comes alongside and says, Will you become a Christian? Yeah, become a Christian. Oh, it's great. Can I help you? Yeah, help me. Right, listen. Now you must read your Bible every day. Okay, got it. 
um, you must have, what I was told, a quiet time. It's a quiet time, sounds weird. You've got to have that. You must have that. And uh, mm, I shouldn't do your hair like that anymore. Okay. And, uh, and I don't think you should wear those things anymore. You shouldn't, no, you shouldn't do that. And you say, okay, 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 got it, got it, got it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I feel, I feel really released today. <laughs> see, 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 what, what, you think, is, am I, see, Paul's furious. He wrote this letter to the Galatians. He said, you fools! I mean, that's the language. You fools! Who has bewitched you? That's a big word to use. Bewitched. All they've said is you need to keep the law. He said, you're being bewitched. Why? Because he has, as it says in Galatians 3, publicly placarded Christ crucified. You can't improve on that. You can't add to that. If you try and add to that, you actually take away from that. You're doing terrible damage to the wonderful gospel. And Paul's so furious that they're getting messed up by saying you need to add law to make sure you're accepted. Now here's the question. See, let me ask it boldly. Is the Christian under law or not? Now, it's quite hard to answer that. Sometimes you think, well, Jesus said the law will never pass away. So is a Christian under the law or not under the law? Paul says, look, since you'll have no dominion, dominion over you, since you're not under law, what's the score here? I mean, if I ask for a show of hands, you know, if I said to you tonight, now, who of us feel that Christians are under the law or not? Or who of us feel Christians are not under law? You know, if I said it like that, I said, let's have a show of hands. I think we'd all be going, what's Steve doing? (laughs) We're not sure about that. That sounds a bit dodgy. I'm not sure we're under law. But, you know, we might say, I'm not that theological. It's very important we get this clear because it affects our understanding of the gospel and our acceptance with God. It's very big. So I only read you one verse just now, but I want to take you into Romans 7. I'll read a few verses this time, just half a dozen. Romans 7, I'm reading from the NASB. It may differ here and there if you have a different translation, but not significantly. Okay, Romans 7, because Paul here, I mean, we could read the whole of Galatians, we could read loads of other stuff, but here in, a couple, in six verses, Paul sets out some teaching that really helps us and nails it. Okay, Romans 7, do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. That sounds pretty thorough, doesn't it? Law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. If her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6. Now, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Now, let's look at this picture. Paul is saying, 
that we are married to the law. Okay, here's the, the imagery, the picture he's painting for us. So the law here is seen as kind of a husband, rather overbearing husband, one who's saying to us, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. I should just insert something here for you to just bear in mind. We'll come back to it later. You have an enemy. He's called the devil. And his name, Satan, means accuser. He's an accuser. And it says in the book of Revelation, he accuses the brothers and sisters, no doubt, day and night. Now, it doesn't say he does anything else day and night. So I take it that accusation is Satan's greatest weapon. That he's incessantly telling you, call yourself a Christian. You're a shocking mother. You're a terrible man. You're, and he just bombards you with accusation. That's one of his weapons to get you depressed, get your head down, make you want to give up, throw in the towel, I can't live this Christian life. He bombards you with accusation. All right, Just to remember that. We'll come back to it. But it kind of gets behind this thing that, the, that this husband of ours, this law, he's forever telling us, you shall not do this. You should not do this. You should not do this. He, he's telling us what not to do. That's what the law does. He's a, a kind of overbearing husband, really. Not only that, you can't argue with him. Because he's right. Everything he says is good. The Bible says the law is good and perfect and holy. So you can't say, I disagree, because it's all very good stuff. But he's kind of so pure. And, and, and he's a husband who's telling you when you're not to do, what you're not to do. He's always right. And he never lifts a finger to help you. See, I don't see too many wives saying, I think he's talking about you, dear. <laughs> so he kind of never helps you. He's just showing you where you, where you fail. And Jesus says, the law will never pass away. So you are permanently married to a perfect husband always showing you where you're wrong. You can't argue with him because he's right. He'll never help you, and he's never going to die. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> he said, I want to become the bride of Christ. Sorry, you've already got a husband. That's what it says. You can't commit adultery. You've got a husband. You've got a husband. The law is your husband. Now, the way he seems to be spelling this out, it looks like, as you read it through, it looks like, we need to get rid of this husband. It looks like. And it looks like he's leading up to the husband needs to die. But Jesus said the last husband will never pass away. So we're in a dilemma. And the Bible agrees with itself, all right? It's got one ultimate author. So how do we escape this? Well, wonderfully, in verse 4, we read it. You, my brothers, were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? Well, let's think about Jesus. It's through the body of Christ. Paul's favorite expression for a Christian is someone who is in Christ. If anybody is in Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creation, actually. If anybody's in Christ, he loves using that phrase, in Christ, in him, in whom. You'll find it again and again. We're in Christ. All right? So what happened to Christ, as we said earlier on, affects us like what Adam, happened to Adam affected us. Now, it says here, you, you, we, were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Well, Jesus had two relationships with the law. 
What do I mean? Well, his first relationship with the law was one of complete innocence. The Bible calls him innocent, holy innocent. In fact, he said to the crowd, which of you convinces me of sin? He challenged them. He threw it out there. Who can convince me of sin? He said this. He said, Satan is coming. He's got nothing on me. He's absolutely pure, utterly sinless, innocent. So one relationship we had with the law was perfect peace, perfect acceptance. That's one relationship we had with the law. But we know something dramatic happened at the cross. And it tells us this in the Bible. God made him who knew no sin, innocent, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But let's take this first part. God made him who knew no sin, he's innocent, to be sin for us. He was the personification of sin. It was like every sin we've ever committed was laid on him. And on the cross, he carried the full guilt of our sin on himself. And it says in Galatians, he was cursed as he hung upon the cross. Cursed. The law is vindicated. The law is right and true. And this sinner deserves to die. He's the biggest sinner the world's ever known because God made him who knew no sin to be sin. The law curses him. He dies. The law demands it. The law requires it. He dies to the law once and for all. It's done. He shouts from the cross, it is accomplished. It is finished. The word means accomplished. I've done it. I've done it. I've fulfilled it. I have fulfilled perfectly this righteous requirement. But in becoming sin, he took the full punishment of the law and of God, was cursed and took away our sin. And Paul says this, you, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. You were in Christ when that happened. Just as we were in Adam when he sinned, we have no recollection of that. I don't remember being in Adam when he took the fruit. I can't remember that at all. The Bible simply says the human race was there. It was in him. His sin affected us all. Now, those who are in Christ, when Jesus died to the law, we died to the law. Hallelujah. Through the body of Christ. It's a dumb deal. The law is vindicated. The law is satisfied. We died. It's all behind us. Now some people would say this. We know the law can't save. We know only Jesus can save. But to get sanctified, you need to go back to the law. The Bible nowhere says that. Nowhere. It nowhere says that. It says this, we've died to the law. We've finished with that old husband. It's all over. We, our relationship, my relationship with the law is completely gone. Because, hey, I died to the law. I no longer have a relationship. But let's read the rest of the verse. We died to the law through the body of Christ so that we can, well, just run, you know, do what you like. No, it doesn't quite say that. It says you died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. Ah, we found another husband. To him who was raised from the dead. We all know who that is. We're joined now to Jesus. He's our new husband. Hallelujah. And then it says this, in order that you might bear fruit for God. Now, 
That's the first time fruit has come in the argument. When you're talking about the law, there's no reference to fruit, bearing fruit. No, no, no. The law gives you commands, rules, regulations. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. There's no reference to fruit. In fact, it says this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21, a very, very helpful verse to help us understand this. It says in Galatians 3, 21, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would come by the law. If a law had been given that could impart life. See, this is where people get it wrong. When they say, go back to the law to be sanctified, the Bible says the law doesn't impart any life. It can't change you. All it does is show you you're a sinner. All it does is show you you're a failure. The law was given to reveal sin, not to make you fruitful. The law's job is to show you you're a sinner. It can't change you. If a law had been given that could impart life, I mean, if the law can impart life, let's go, come on, let's go down to all the schools tomorrow. Let's just go into the schools, let's say it. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall, let's just go and say it. If the law imparts life, come on, let's go and change everybody. Just go and tell them. But there's no law that imparts any life. It doesn't do that. All the law makes people aware of is, when I did that, I shouldn't have done it. It doesn't change you. So we were married to a husband who didn't impart any life. He was an impotent husband. He didn't impart anything to me. Now, hallelujah, we've died to that husband in order that we might be joined to this husband, that we might bear fruit. Wow, there's a new deal. We've found a husband who's not impotent. In fact, he's very potent. And he says things like this, my peace I give you. <laughs> the Lord never said that. My love, I pour it out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Wow. My joy I give you. You'll find, Jesus, is, he's a, a life-imparting husband. And he says things like this, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. I want to be changed, Lord. Hey, get very close to your new husband. Enjoy his affection. Enjoy his delight in you. Enjoy his love. You will be changed from the inside. We no longer serve in the letter, but in the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Hallelujah. It says in verse 6, you've been discharged from the law, having died to that by which you were bound. It's like a soldier. Imagine being in the army. And maybe for a couple of years, you know, Sergeant Major's been screaming at you, and you just do whatever he says. And then there comes the day when you're discharged. That's what the word means, discharged. It's finished. And, and you imagine yourself strolling over the parade ground, you've got no tie on, you've got a jacket over your shoulder, and uh, you're a free man. And the sergeant comes around the corner and says, Hey, soldier! <gasps> Sarge! Hey, wait a minute. I'm out. <laughs> Bye, Sarge. <laughs> It doesn't matter how much he screams at you. He can't touch you. You're discharged. You're no longer under his authority. It's a new deal. It's a new deal. We've got a new husband who imparts life to us. He changes us 
from the inside. We're not under law. We're under grace. God's changed the whole arrangement. He's made a new covenant with us. And you don't go back to the law. It says in Hebrews, the law made nothing perfect. You say, oh, no, you need some law. No, no, it makes nothing perfect. It doesn't change you. See, even, even the Laodicean church, it's been through a time of being lukewarm. And you find, you find Jesus is at the door knocking, it says. Now, we often use this verse as an evangelistic verse, uh, Revelation 3.20. But it's not evangelistic, it's written to the church. As you become lukewarm, I'm outside the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. It doesn't say, if anyone makes sure he's keeping the rules and works harder at that, maybe I'll look at you again. It's just if anyone hears me, opens the door, I will come in, I'll sup with him. And he with me, he'll come and fellowship, he'll come and renew. You see, he's the way. We don't need a way to the way. He is the way. And sometimes you ask Christians, how get not? And they say, a bit up and down. I want to suggest to you that you're not so much up and down as kind of husband to husband. You're trying to think, how do I get accepted? Oh, I better try harder. I better try and keep God happy. I've got to keep these rules to keep God happy. And that's failing to see, no, 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 that's all finished with. That's behind us. We no longer go back to law to somehow justify ourselves. And Paul said about the, uh, his contemporaries, the, the, the Jewish people, he said, he said they have forsaken the God's way, trying to establish a righteousness of their own based on law instead of accepting the righteousness that comes from God by faith. And beloved, when you see that, we say, I'm not under law. That's not the way to God. It's so releasing. It sets me free. I don't go that way anymore. There's nothing I need to accumulate. There's nothing I need to establish. Because, you see, we get under what I call condemnation. That's a Bible word. And sometimes people get condemned. They feel condemned. And they're trying to deal with this sense of condemnation. And sometimes we're trying to deal with it by working harder. So it's, it's like, imagine this right arm represents my sense of condemnation, my awareness of failure. So Satan, we mentioned earlier, he comes and accuses, says, you're no good, you're no good. No, no I'm no good. How are you going to overcome it? Well, I'll pray harder. I'm trying to cover condemnation. I'll pray harder. I'll read my Bible more. I'll do this. I'm trying to hide this condemnation by doing more religious stuff. And you're doing it, you're doing it, and then Satan comes again and says, How get, oh, I'm doing better, I'm working harder. Oh, how, are you, have you heard about Julie? No, what about Julie? She fasts twice a week. Oh, no, I fast twice a week. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I remember when I was a young Christian, and a friend of mine used to commute from Brighton to London, like I used to, and one day he told me, actually I went right through the train and gave up tracks in every compartment. I went, <laughs> tracks in every compartment. What have I got to do? What have I got to do? What have I got to do? See, you see, I'll work harder. I will do it. I'll fast twice a week. So Satan comes, how are you doing? I'm doing better. I'm praying. Yes, I am. I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. I'm fasting twice a week. He <laughs> says, I expect you're pleased. Yes, I'm pleased. I expect you're proud. Uh, you know, thinking, I am proud. Ah. <laughs> you see, and sometimes you think, I can't win. 
If I'm doing badly, I'm doing badly. If I'm doing good, I'm doing badly. Because <laughs> I get proud of it. And, and you think, how do you get out of this? And beloved, a lot of Christians kind of give up because it's so hard. So hard. And really, it's good news. It's good news of salvation. It's good news of mercy. It's not putting a load of stuff on you. Jesus said to his contemporaries, he said, you load them with heavy burdens and don't lift a finger to free them. You just load them with burdens. Jesus said, come to me, I'll give you rest. Learn of me, I'm meek and lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your soul. It's good news, this gospel. It's not work hard and you'll be accepted. Because we reign in life because of the abundance of grace, not law, not law, by grace. And the second thing in the, in the verse says, and the free gift of righteousness. It's a free gift. It's a gift. It's not you trying hard. See, otherwise what happens is this. We, we kind of come back from maybe a meeting like this and you just, Lord, I'm back with you. I'm, I really feel good. Thank you, Jesus. You accepted me. Uh, 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 let me. Let me kind of pretend I'm one of the wives here, okay? So you get up tomorrow morning. I might go seek God. Lord Jesus, bless my husband today. Uh, let his light shine in the workplace. Lord, you know, he's a really good man. Let his... Let, let him just his work be seen. Give him a chance to, to name your name. And Lord, just bless him. And be nice to, I don't know, maybe I could do a really nice meal for him tonight. Yeah, I could do that. I could go down. I'll get some, I'll go and get some nice, I'll get a steak. I'll get a bottle of wine. I want to bless him. I, it's just, uh, I'm supposed to be praying. Oh, yeah, praying. Uh, 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 oh, yeah, praying. Um, uh, Oh yeah, the mission, it's the missionary supper on Friday. The missionary supper. Lord, bless the missionaries as they come on Friday. Uh, Lord, as they speak to us about Africa and as uh, they tell us what they're doing. Uh, Lord, pray that really speak to Yeah, here we go. Bless it. Lord, make it... Uh, the, oh, the missionary supper. Oh yeah, I said I'd do the salad. <laughs> and I, I was going to do the quiche. I, haven't, I, haven't, I need to get some eggs. I must get some, oh, damn, no, we're near ready. Oh, I, I could, I tell you what, I could go, I could get that. <laughs> At the same time, I could get the meal for my husband. Oh, that would be fun. I'll get the meal for my husband, I'll get the food. See, then Satan comes. Oh, mighty woman of intercession. Are you prevailing in the heavenlies? You think prevailing in the heavenlies? I'm a waste of time. My, my brain goes out the window. I can't pray for toffee. I'm a useless company. That's my Bible reading. Where was I? Oh, yeah, I'm 13 days behind, aren't I? Uh, uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember. I was in, oh, yeah, Leviticus. That's right. Uh, I got there. That's right. Uh, Leviticus for you. He shall remove from the sacrifice all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that's on the entrails with the two kidneys, with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. <laughs> See, then Satan comes along again and says, getting a lot out of it, are we? <laughs> he said, don't know what it's all about. I'm useless. I'm a useless Christian. See, I can't pray for toffee. I don't know what the Bible's all about. I'm going to have a terrible day now. I had a really bad, quiet time. So, 
probably missed the bus now. You see, <laughs> and, and we start assessing ourselves. You see, whoa, whoa, whoa. last night we say, hey, it's great, I'm with Jesus. This morning, I'm a disaster. Something must have happened through the night. <laughs> you just slept through the night. But now you're assessing yourself on how well am I performing these religious duties. He said, don't you read the Bible then, Terry? Yeah, I do, but I don't do it to gain merit. So don't say, Lord, whole chapter this morning. Good, marks for that, whole chapter. <laughs> Pretty good, I get how many? Five points for that. See, prayed for 20 minutes this morning. How about that? You know, I don't pray or read the Bible to earn merit. I'm not trying to impress God. I found someone who impressed him on my behalf. He's thoroughly impressed with his beloved son. And I am given his righteousness. That's what justification means. So this sense of guilt, this condemnation, sanctification can never cover it. How well I'm doing is another subject. How I get rid of condemnation is through one thing, justified freely as a gift. Justified. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's all it says, in Christ. You only have to be in Christ. Someone said when they really saw that in the Bible, they underlined it so much, it went right through to the maps. <laughs> there is no condemnation. Do you believe it? See, beloved, when you wake tomorrow morning, there's no condemnation. There isn't any. See, some people say, now, when you pray, first thing you need to do is confess. Well, people say that. Now, learn to pray. First thing, come to God say, Lord... I'm sorry, you just clean the decks, that's the first thing to do. Then you can, no, that's silly. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't say, when you pray, start with confession. He didn't say that. Some preachers will say that. Jesus didn't say that. See, what happens if you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry about that. And then Satan creeps up on you and says, and what about that? Oh, yeah, that too. And so, so yeah, I'm sorry about that as well. And what about, oh, yeah, terrible. And it's like he gives you a big shovel and you dig a hole. And you jump in. Oh, terrible Christian. That was a great prayer time, wasn't it? And if you get back to ground level, you think you did quite well. Whereas really, if you come before God each morning and say, Jesus, you're my righteousness. I'm accepted. I'm delighted in. Lord, it's an amazing wonder to me. I'm accepted. I'm delighted. That's what you'll find in my prayer meeting every morning. When I come to Jesus, I don't start with, oh, confess, I'm sorry. Now, if you work your way through the Lord's Prayer, which is a helpful sort of structure for praying, you'll get to and forgive us. It's not we become blasé. We do things we shouldn't have done. We confess them. We, we bring them to God. But if you start all the time sin-centered, you're missing the triumph of what Jesus has done for us. You're not celebrating it. When you come to Jesus, when you pray, say, Father. Oh, Father. This is the most wonderful thing. He's adopted me into his family. I'm accepted. That's where we start. That's where we live. And so this free gift of righteousness, it's, it's a gift. Even in the Old Testament, they understood. You bring a lamb. It has to be a spotless lamb. You can't bring a diseased lamb. You find in Malachi, God says, you promise this, you, send, you, you bring a blind lamb, you bring a sick lamb, you just say, oh, we don't need that one, give that one to God. That's unacceptable. You bring a perfect lamb. And they used to bring their lamb to the priest, the priest would take the lamb and inspect it. 
Is it blind? No, it's not. Any limbs broken? No. Is it diseased? No. And he would say these words, I find no fault in him. See, when you offer your lamb, you're not thinking, I do hope he doesn't notice this has got all mud on it. And this is all torn. It's irrelevant. All eyes are on the lamb. Anything wrong with the lamb? (laughs) It's the lamb that stands for you. No, nothing wrong with the lamb. Hallelujah. Pilate said this, I find no fault in him. I've got a lamb that's got nothing wrong with him. Perfectly spotless. I am complete in him. So are you. We reign in life because of that. I was praying once and I felt God brought to me very vividly the story of Esau, or at least of Jacob, when he went to his blind father, Isaac. Isaac was blind, old, very old, can't see any longer. He's got one son he loves and delights in. His name's Esau. He's a hunter. He's off hunting. Jacob is a crook. Comes in, steals Esau's clothes, puts them on, puts skins on his hands to seem like a, an outside guy, a hairy man. He draws near to his blind father, and he's kind of hoping that father won't realize it's Jacob. He hopes he'll think it's the son that he loves because he wants a blessing from his father. And I'm praying one day, and this bit just suddenly came to me so vividly. I felt God said to me, don't fear that I'll find you hidden in the son that I love because I placed you in the son that I love. You see, and Jacob got all the blessings because Isaac sniffed, he said, oh, it's my, it's my son's clothes, it's Esau. So he blessed him because you're hidden in the son that was beloved. And God said right into my heart, don't fear, I'll find you there. I placed you there, I provided him for you. And Jacob got all the blessings because he was hidden in Esau, the son that was loved. And I pray and I sometimes say, Lord, here I come in the righteousness of Jesus. Lord, just think again about his perfect obedience. Consider his gentleness, his purity, his love, his devotion to you. I'm hidden in that. It's like, get a good feel of it, Lord. And I'm in there. I'm in there. Yes, I'm accepted in the beloved, the son that he loves. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. We're accepted in the son that he loves. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. John Bunyan said this. One day he was walking, it's interesting, a Puritan, old Puritan, John Bunyan, he saw a vision. He saw a vision of Christ as his righteousness. And he suddenly, he said, I suddenly realized, he said, it didn't matter about my frame. Interesting, that old word frame, we tend not to use it, although one of our songs uses it, an old hymn, actually. Dare not trust the sweetest frame. I think, what's that all about? Well, it's kind of frame of mind. It's really more about my emotional state. I dare not trust how I feel. And, and Bunyan said, I realized it wasn't my frame. He said, if, if I felt down, I couldn't take away from the righteousness of Christ. And if I felt good, I couldn't add to the righteousness of Christ. But Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hallelujah. So when I wake up tomorrow, Jesus is my righteousness, whether I have a good, quiet time or not. 
You know, oh, I slept through my quiet time. Well, Jesus is my righteousness still. Hallelujah. <laughs> Beloved, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. When I first saw this, I thought, oh, can it be true? It's almost like I said, they could not believe for joy when they heard he was raised from the dead. It's like, it's too good to be, but it's the gospel. This is what it says. We are accepted in the beloved. We are declared righteous. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. It says in Hebrews that the Old Testament priests could never sit down because they never finished. Make one offering, oh, then make another offering, now make another offering. And it says this, Jesus, having made his offering, sat down. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's perfected us for all time. He's declared us righteous. We're winners. We reign in life. Not because of how well you're doing, but because of the free gift of righteousness and the fact we're not under law, but under grace. This is good news. This is the gospel, beloved. This is what it's all about. We reign in life because of this. God has made us gloriously free. He's released us. He's declared us righteous. Hallelujah. We reign in life. Now you might say, well, what about, well, shall, shall we carry on sinning then? If God's happy for us to be called righteous? Well, that's the next question. Shall we carry on sinning? Well, well, we'll look at that next time. <laughs> See, the gospel, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher from London of a, uh, last century now, wonderful man of God, he said this, if you preach the gospel properly, it forces that question to the surface. Shall we carry on sinning then? He says, you never ask a legalist that. See, a legalist says, don't do this, you mustn't do that, you mustn't do that. You don't ask legalists, shall we carry on sinning? Then? Of course you don't, not to do that, you mustn't do that. You preach the gospel, the biblical gospel, it forces this question, well, shall we carry on sinning then? And he answers it pretty well. We'll look at that next time. The old King James says, God forbid. Even though the word God isn't in the text anywhere. God forbid. J.B. Phillips, that perfect Englishman, says, what a ghastly thought. <laughs> so when we look next month, we'll see in Romans 6 his answer to that question, which not only says no, it actually shows us how, how to get free. Not that this would be preferable, but how we get free. And it's not about going back to law. Nowhere is it about going back to law. It's again coming to see what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And we'll see that next time. I felt God said to me some years ago, don't rush on to chapter 6. It's a little bit like a child. When I was at school, we used to do watercolour painting. And watercolour painting, they used to say, right, we put a blue sky in, don't use too much colour, a lot of water, let's just keep it light, right? Just let the colour walk down the page, blue sky, right? Now leave that, uh, we'll come back tomorrow. Uh, it's just blue sky. I want to paint my brown tree with its green leaves. No, no, tomorrow. I want to do it today. No, do it tomorrow. <laughs> no, I want to do it today. So what do we do? We take our brown brush and we paint in our brown trunk and our green leaves, but it's still wet. And you don't get a brown tree and green leaves. You get, because <laughs> it all confuses in. 
You just need to blue to dry and settle. And we need grace to grip us and free us. And then we'll look at what it says in chapter 6. And it's not going to contradict anything I've said tonight. It won't take away at all, at all. It'll just build on it. But if you rush into it, you can think, oh, well, so, so, uh, no, no, let's get it clear. We reign in life through the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's just stand and we'll pray, and then we'll do whatever Steve tells us to do. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your willingness, your wonderful kindness, your breathtaking, amazing grace. That, Lord, you laid aside your majesty. That you, Lord, you who knew no sin, God made you to be sin for us. We thank you for this glorious exchange. We thank you took the full curse of the law that we walk away free. We thank you, Lord, we are married to you now. The joy of knowing you, the joy of receiving your love, your free righteousness, your joy, your peace. Oh, we love you, Lord. You're a great, wonderful husband. You impart life to us. Keep us very engaged to yourself. Help us to enjoy your presence and your love. Please bless your word to us tonight. May it do us lasting good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let me just mention the books again. I really want to encourage you. God's lavish grace, if you could work through it, it'll just broaden the whole thing out, get you really settled in it. Good, thank you.